This is WMPG. I'm Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about courage, the courage to talk about the subjects that are the hardest to bring up, but that we think about the most. This month's series is on the untold stories of dementia, how we live with it in our loved ones and how we cope with the fear of getting it ourselves. This month, for the first time, we are inviting you to contact us if you have a similar story that you would like to share. We're calling this new section of the show Echoing Stories, and we'll be playing them toward the end of this series. So if you have an untold story about dementia yourself, please email me at dranne at safespaceradio.com. And Dr. Anne is D-R-A-N-N-E at safespaceradio.com. Today I'm going to be speaking with Frances Reynolds about her husband's dementia. Frances is 72, and she was married to Morty Randolph for 51 years until he passed away in 2012 of complications related to his Alzheimer's. Frances has three children and seven grandchildren. Before Frances's life was impacted by dementia, she got her master's in family life education and worked as an adult education teacher. She was involved in developing government programs to help unemployed adults re-enter the workforce. She worked with abused women, troubled youth, and disadvantaged adults, and ended her career as a vice principal in a large elementary school. Welcome to Safe Space, Francis. Thank you. Let's begin by having you tell me a little bit about your husband, Morty. What was he like before he became ill? Um, my husband was a, a chartered accountant. Um, he was a very, very people-oriented person. People kind of really liked him. He always had a joke. He always had a smile. He was rather boisterous. Um, he loved sports. He loved participating and watching. And he he loved parties. He was an extrovert, it sounds like. Yeah, he, he was uh, someone that was um, always happy in a crowd and loved to be the center of a crowd. And so what were some of the first signs that you had that something wasn't quite right? Um, basically, I started to notice that he was having trouble remembering things. He, he was, I mean, this was a person who you could ask him the most minute kind of sports trivia question, and he always knew the answer quickly. And suddenly he was, not remembering. Um, all of a sudden, when he drove the car, he was afraid of getting lost. And this was someone who was never afraid of getting lost. We traveled the world. We drove, he drove a car, and he never worried about getting lost. He started to be afraid of the dark. What did um, you make of that at the time? Well, at the time, I just sort of, hmm... I don't know, I kind of tried not to notice too much. But then I started to notice that his gait when he was walking was different. It, you know, and so I started to put all of these things together, spoke to my GP and said, I really think he needs to be evaluated. And so he set up an appointment for us at the um, memory clinic. And so we waited for a little bit to get an appointment, and, and he was evaluated. And, of course, 
the diagnosis came back as he had early onset Alzheimer's. And when you say or, early onset, how old was he at the time? He was um, probably about 67. And it sounds like he'd been showing signs of it even he'd before that. He'd been showing signs of it probably for two years. So here you are, you're both young. Dementia is not what you're expecting to be dealing with. No. What was it like for you to get that diagnosis? Well, you know, I uh, retired at the age of 60, and the plan was that we were going to travel to all the places that we wanted to go to that we hadn't been yet because we loved to travel, and we were great together as travelers. And then suddenly... um, This happened. Um, At the time, uh, I was able to take him to South Africa on safari, Mm. um, and that was okay. But even then, um, there were some difficult moments. Um, I was very careful about, you know, always, you know, being with him. You know, if he wanted to go down to the pool, which is not my favorite place, I still went with him because I was afraid he'd get lost and he would panic. So it was difficult. Um, That was one trip that we took after he had been diagnosed. And another trip we took was um, for our 50th anniversary and my 70th birthday. Our children um, wanted us to have a special thing, so they sent us on a Bermuda cruise. And um, and that was was difficult. Um, he was very people oriented, as I said. And but I noticed that you know he would talk. He when we had gone on cruises previously, I mean he knew everybody on the ship after two days. <laughs> right. You know, and he you know would meet and talk with people, but I noticed that people were treating him differently like they were recognizing that there was something wrong. Do you know what it was they were noticing? Well, I think that they were just noticing that he was different, that he, let's say, when he was telling a story, I mean, we all started to notice that he could repeat himself 20 times. Like one of the things that happens is that somebody who has Alzheimer's repeats themselves because after they've told something, 10 minutes later they forget that they've told it, so they tell it again. Yes, exactly. And so that was very difficult for me and probably much more difficult for him. Although at the beginning, I don't think he realized that people noticed. When you say that, it almost makes me think like it was sort of really dawning on you that he was no longer the same person. Well, that was it. I mean, I knew he was no longer the same person. I knew he um, he was at that point still trying really hard to hang on. You know that that thing about the person who's grasping at straws and they're like hanging by sort of the the edge of their fingernails and they know that they're going to have to let go at some point. So you were watching him do that. And that was what I felt. I felt like he was trying so hard to be normal. But he knew that he was losing the battle. And did he speak to you about his fear about that? Did he speak to no. you? No. His, his, he never, ever used the word Alzheimer's. Um, he would say that he had a memory block. 
but never that it was Alzheimer's. And when you had been given the diagnosis, did the doctor tell the two of you together and use that word? Yes, he did, but but he never he didn't hear the Alzheimer's or he or he heard it, but that was it. He never spoke about it. And Francis, was that hard for you that he didn't speak about it? I think it was hard for me, but I think that it was also sort of a it was almost like a nonverbal thing and I just went along with it and I didn't speak to him about the Alzheimer's. He knew he had a problem. Um, he knew that um, he wasn't going to be able to stay at his office for much longer. Um, you know, when you're an accountant, you're working with other people's money, which becomes very dangerous when you are not functioning properly. Um, he voluntarily stopped driving because he realized his reactions were not the same, and he was afraid of having an accident and killing another person. I'm glad for you, because having to take someone's license away is such a right. difficult so thing. Right, he, so he did that voluntarily. So I became the driver. Um, at, at about that same time, uh, we were living downtown in an old house that was like 250 years old and had many, many stairs. And I could see that he was having trouble. So I decided that this was the time to sell our house and to get a condo. So we did do that, but basically I made all the decisions. I mean, he was not, he, he, he had lost his concept of money. It, it was almost as if when we would talk about money, like $100 was a huge amount of money. Like yes, it, his sense he, of proportion, he'd lost. He lost, he lost all, uh, you know, the, the proportions of money, how much money one spends for whatever. He, he just, he lost it. So I realized that, you know, I, I mean, I was it, basically. Yes, it was all, all on you. It was point. all on me. And, and I had never, you know, done the financial stuff because he was an accountant, so I left it all in his hands. So that was a, a learning experience for me, okay. a good learning experience, <laughs> but a learning experience that I wasn't prepared to do. Yes. Retirement became something quite different than what I expected it to be. Yes, here you were imagining all this travel together. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things you're describing is just this series of losses, these trips, uh, being able to rely on him for the money and so on. Mm -hmm. And do you feel that, uh, almost as if, a lot of your grieving was done before he actually died? I think that a, that there was a, a, a lot of grieving was done before. I mean, I knew that the man that I married and that I loved was no longer here. And as he was getting more and more introverted and more and more angry and more and more bitter and all those things, I really didn't like him very much at all. You know? Yeah. Like, this was not the person that I had married, and I kind of had to struggle with accepting this new person and realizing that, like it or not, that, that was the way it was. You mentioned how angry he would get, and I wondered if you would tell me the story of how he did become angry and, and even ultimately aggressive with you. Well... You know, 
he he had been threatening me. I think that, you know, he loved me and he hated me once he became sick because he knew that he loved me, but I don't think that he liked the fact that suddenly I had all the control and all the power. That suddenly everything went through me and I was the one in control and that I was good at it. Mm. And I, I don't think he liked that about it, about the situation. So he, he would threaten me and he would say some pretty awful things to me. Um, you know, he was much bigger than me. He weighed much more than me, all of those things. And he would say, you know, I can beat you. I can put you in a wooden box and throw earth on your head. And I kind of, you know, I, I would get annoyed, I would get angry, I would get hurt. And then I would realize that it's the disease talking, not him. And I would sort of say, okay, and pass it by. But there was one night when um, he had gone to bed early. He He had started to be afraid of the dark, as I said, and he really didn't have a concept of time. So he went to bed really early. I was doing the laundry, and all of a sudden he came out of the bedroom into the den, and he said to me, What are you doing? Look at this noise in this house. It's late at night. Who puts machines on at night? And I looked up at him, and I said, You know, it's really not late at night. It's only 830 and he started yelling at me, and then he turned around and he hit me. And, I mean, I'd been married to him for 51 years. He never hit me. So I was totally in shock, but I was also lying on the couch. He was standing over me, and he wouldn't let me off the couch. So I kind of panicked because I realized that he could really hurt me. And I couldn't get out of the room. And so um, then I noticed on the desk that my cell phone was there, and I knew that he really didn't know much about cell phones or about texting. So I texted my daughter. So he didn't even I, realize what you were doing, you mean? He didn't know what I was doing. Uh-huh. I texted my daughter, and I said, Daddy hit me. And, of course, she said, do you want me to come over? And I said, well, how will you come over? My daughter is, is a single mother with two children. Um, she said, let me check if I can get someone to stay. Anyway, she couldn't, so she called her brother, who lives in a suburb about 15 minutes away from where we live. And he said, he's coming right over. And he said to me, you need to call the police. And I said, I can't. It was because I knew he wouldn't let me and I wouldn't be able to answer the door. So I said to my son, when you come close to our house, you call. Because he had a key to get in. So he came into the house and, and um, at which point my husband said to him, and what are you doing here? And he said, can't I come and visit my parents? You know? And then a few minutes later, the police arrived, and he started fighting with the police. He, he pushed the policeman. He punched one of the policemen. And mm. it took them a very long time. They handcuffed him. It was, it was horrible. It was a, 
it was a nightmare. It sounds like it. And the policeman came to me after they were had him cuffed, and they said, um, do you want us to arrest him? And I said, what's wrong with you people? He's a sick man. He needs to go to the hospital. So they called an ambulance, and they took him to the hospital. And um, I did not visit him for the first few days because he was very violent. In the hospital, even? In the hospital. Um, And uh, when I did visit him, he said to me, why are you doing this to me? Because, of course, I don't think he remembered. Uh. And shortly after that, everything was downhill. He was in the hospital for a short period of time before we found a placement for him. And during that short period, which was probably like three or four weeks, he totally became disoriented. He didn't know who I was. He he just just lost it completely. So it sounds like there was just a very rapid decline. It was very rapid. He was at a plateau for a long time, and then it was very rapid. So, Francis, I mean, you're describing a very traumatic experience of this man who you loved and trusted, who, albeit, you know, had become different and had threatened you, but nonetheless, this was, I just imagine, so shocking and distressing. How did you come to terms with it in in the weeks that followed what what helped you recover well, from that i somehow i was i'm very lucky i my children are very very supportive i have some very dear friends who are supportive as well i had a kind of a network and i knew that i needed to be able to function and that i needed to be able to have a life and that I needed to be able to do things. And so I tried to find a balance where I could visit, but not stay for hours because he didn't really need me to stay for hours because he didn't need me at all, right? He didn't know who I was. So I realized that I was visiting, and it was probably my need, not his need, to have me visit, and so I started to, uh, right from, from the time that, you know, when he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and he started to go downhill and he stopped working, um, he, was, he, he started to attend some groups at the Alzheimer's Group, which is a wonderful community service in Montreal, which gave me some free time to just um, do my own thing and make me feel human. Yes, yeah, so it's like you gave yourself permission not to That's suffer. Right. I didn't force myself to stay. I didn't do things that I couldn't do or that were distasteful to me. I would not change a diaper. I would call them, but I wouldn't do it because if he knew for even one second who I was, and that I was doing this, it would be horrifying for him. So in a way, it was almost an act of care for yourself and for him. Exactly. It wasn't that I didn't care. It was that I knew that I couldn't, 
that it would just it would it would break my heart and it would kill me to do it. So part of what I hear your message is is really uh, know your own limits and honor them. That's right. That's right. And and no and not feel guilty because you can't do it. Yeah. And, you know? and this issue, I'd like to hear more about that because the issue about guilt and about how much to give and how much is too much is so fraught. Uh, people feel guilty if they don't do more, but then they feel resentful if they sacrifice their whole life. How, when you say I trained myself not to well, feel guilty. I think that I sort of started to think that, you know, at first you feel guilty because you feel that this person that you've been living with for more time than you didn't live with him has become a burden. But I think that it's okay to realize that that person is a burden, and the more you love that person, the more of a burden it is on you. Hmm. And once I gave myself permission to recognize that I was a person still, and that I needed to survive. And I knew that I could not, I could control his life to the point where I could make decisions about where he was going to live, about what he was going to do, about all those things. But I had no control over the Alzheimer's. And once I realized that I had no control over the Alzheimer's, I was able to let go of some of the bitterness. So help me understand that, because that sounds really powerful. So once you accepted, I can't, I can't save him, basically. I can't save him from this no. disease. I realized that no matter what I did, I was not in control of the disease. I was barely in control of him. So the only thing that I could be in control of was me. Right. If I was in control of me, then I had to find a way that my life somehow had happy moments. Yeah. Um, I was very supported that way. I was um, always welcome in various people's homes to participate in whatever activities they were doing, Um Right, because you kind of become a single person, even though you aren't actually single. Well, that's it. You know, and that was the other thing. You know, I would say to myself that in in sort of the, the social world, I had no standing. I wasn't divorced. I wasn't a widow. And yet I was alone. You know, we did in one of the earlier interviews in this series with Pauline Boss, we talked about how dementia is such a hard illness to grieve because the person is both here and not here at the same time and it's very right. confusing but we didn't talk about what you're saying which is that your identity as wife is also very much kind of wife and not wife i mean i was no longer a wife i, I hadn't been a wife for a long time um in fact when my husband stopped recognizing me which was probably seven months before he passed away, um, he would sometimes talk about me, to me. Hmm. We have time just for one more question, Francis, which okay. is, um, I know that he passed a year ago, and I wanted to ask you about 
what it's been like to grieve him now that he has died and whether or not, whether you find that your relationship with him uh, has changed now that he's actually died? Well, you know, it, it's kind of um, a strange thing that you should be asking me that question because I was just discussing this with, with my daughter and I was saying, you know, I thought that it would be easier because really your father left us a long time ago. But somehow there's a difference between being alive with the disease and actually being dead because you can't visit the person, you can't anything. But um, uh, about six months ago, we had a a party for my son-in-law's 50th birthday and um, my daughter had made a video. And in the video, there was a section with her father, and this was the speech that he made at their wedding, which he had done totally off the cuff. And um, after I got over the shock, because I wasn't expecting this, I realized that I had forgotten that person the one who could speak off the cuff, the one who could make jokes, the one who had those dancing blue eyes that were alive. I had forgotten that person because I had been so busy with the disease. Yeah, so now I hear what you're saying is that there's sadness in realizing how far, how much you had lost this real person. There's sadness in realizing how much I have lost there's sadness in realizing how long ago I lost it. You know, yeah. Um, there's kind of a, a um, like flashbacks now to to my husband. Like when when the disease is progressing, you're so busy with the disease that you don't see those small changes, like the fact that all of a sudden the eyes are blank and dead. You don't see that. I only saw it after, after I saw this video and after I started looking back at old pictures in a different way. You saw it through the contrast of those dancing blue eyes. It That's right. Like. Yeah. Francis, I want to thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space Radio. It's so helpful to hear you tell this story. Because I know that you're, you're not alone in so many of these experiences. So well, thank you. you. Know, the only thing that I can say is that I hope that people out there who hear this shouldn't allow themselves to be isolated, to feel ashamed, because it's nobody's fault. And so we need, instead of feeling shame, we need to fight this and try and find some way to have to see something positive. And just out of curiosity, Francis, when you say instead of feeling shame, what is the shame? Well, I, I think that people are ashamed to say that their husband, their wife, their sister, their brother has Alzheimer's, that they isolate themselves from social things. Yes. I think that, you know, we have to accept the fact that um, there's... Nobody gets through life without disease, without crisis, without a fear of dying, and that we need to sort of face that and not feel ashamed 
of something that we have no control that just happened. Yes, I think you're right. I think you're you're naming something very powerful. Thank you so much. Thank you're you. You're more than welcome. This is WMPG. I've been talking to Frances Reynolds about taking care of her husband with dementia and how she coped with his increasing aggression and how she really learned to take care of herself. If you are caring for someone with dementia and have begun to feel unsafe, do take those feelings seriously. Contact your doctor or the person you're caring for's doctor and let them know about these threats. You can also connect with your local agency on aging here in southern Maine. That number is 396-6500. They offer case management services that can help you begin to think about how to solve this problem. But don't be afraid alone. If you have a story about a loved one with dementia that you would like to tell in the hopes of helping others, please email us at drannne at safespaceradio.com. And Dr. Ann is D-R-A-N-N-E at safespaceradio.com. And if you only got to listen to part of this show and you'd like to hear all of it or you'd like to email the link to a friend, please go to our website at www.safespaceradio.com and you can listen to this show and all the preceding ones in this series. You can subscribe there to get a weekly email with a link to that week's show as well. You can download us from iTunes and you can like us on Facebook. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show, to Jen Hodson for mixing the sound, Maurice Lennon for the music, and Jim Russell for consulting with us. Coming up next is Speak Freely.